Hello, my name is Ivy, and you are listening to Designer DAO. Designer DAO is a place where we talk about everything web and design. Hello, and welcome back to Designer DAO. Uh, today, I'm speaking with Travis. Uh, and Travis is an awesome designer. He's probably going to tell you a little bit about himself. Um, what, I guess, to start off, like, how would you, what's your uh, elevator pitch that is you? <laughs> uh, the elevator pitch that is me <laughs> is that I cannot be held by an elevator pitch. <laughs> I'm I'm more of like um, War and Peace length kind of okay. person. <laughs> um, That's fine. I guess. How did you travel down the rabbit hole that is a, you being a designer today? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, so let's see. It's going to be probably a little bit of a meandering story, but. <clears throat> Um, my background is in the arts, like the fine arts, um, more, more so than design. I've always kind of resisted design, um, very naively, very immaturely, um, in hindsight. Um, I feel like I've spent a lot of my life rejecting the kind of, uh, pragmatic or utilitarian aspects, or let's say functional, the functional aspects of design. And I was always drawn to the kind of chaos of imagination and the absurdity of art. Um, I studied painting. Um, so I w- I've, you know, I took all of the early fundamental 2D, 3D, 4D um, fundamentals of design courses. And I was really keen in like the gestalt of the language um, and all of that. But the way I wanted to apply it was to not follow rules, but to break rules and to not make functional things, but to make, yeah, absurdist things, I think would be the best way of saying it. Um, Did that for a long time, made all kinds of weird work. My paintings turned into sculptures, which turned into installations, which turned into kinds of immersive, experiential, uh, I guess you can call them performances. And um, I was working towards teaching somewhere at the intersection of, of expanded artistic practice and uh, philosophy. And I was studying, um, I was in a PhD program studying um, basically aesthetic theory and critical theory um, during COVID and coordination problems kind of caused all that to explode. Um, And that's when I started, that's when I kind of had an epiphany where I'm like living out here in the middle of nowhere. I live off grid in in Northern New Mexico. And so it's like, I don't long, I no longer have the access to city life and city folks anymore. Um, So I have to get creative and um, rather than doing some remedial um, tasks, I fell back upon my, my design knowledge and tried to, I just had like a total epiphany change of heart that applying these things, not applying these things would be a waste basically. Um, and there's some history in there too, beyond my education, where I I spent some years as a furniture designer and a graphic designer lived in Scandinavia and was exposed to a lot of that design. 
Um, I was repairing um, like couture lamps in in like Stockholm for a couple of years. I, I've I've like definitely dabbled in all kinds of more utilitarian design, but um, yeah, during COVID, during the pandemic, and then being really isolated and looking for remote work, I kind of found my way towards um, user experience and user interface design. And um, that was what tipped me down the rabbit hole into crypto and into the DAO space. And I've been a full-time Taoist working in various kinds of, um, yeah, you know, design in the expanded field, I guess, like community design and DAO, um, DAO design, like um, in terms of like DAO architectural design and things like that, just as much as user experience flows and, um, you know, software, more like traditional software development flows and um, even like UI design systems, things like that, which is how we ultimately met. Yeah, it seems like we had like opposite journeys. I feel like I came out the womb knowing that I wanted to be a designer and like didn't really explore much else. <laughs> um, mm. uh, yeah, because um, I actually started dabbling in design like in middle school you know, uh, teaching myself HTML to build my MySpace profile, things like that. Um, and then uh, I went to uh, a, a magnet high school, meaning that like it was like uh, like a specialized high school and studied graph design. And once I started learning graph design, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So so I um, I started the graph design club in high school where we like made designs and like printed, like we had like a mini sh- print shop <laughs> outside of the, in the high school um yeah and uh then I went to college and uh, when, around the time I, I started college this is like early 2000s like UX wasn't a huge like thing in the academic space yet it was just like when I started college they had just had their they were in their first year of human-centered design like as a major um at my college I went to uh which is California College of the Art and um, I realized wait, halfway. Wait, wait. You went to California College of the Arts in the I Bay did. Area. I did. That's where I went. <laughs> really? That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I did. I got my undergrad from there. Yeah, I got my undergrad in graphic design from there. <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's a great school for design. Yeah, you tell you telling me because I realized halfway through that I wasn't really good at graphic design as much as my cohort. <laughs> Because uh, everybody else was killing the game, and I was like so uninspired. And I realized in my junior review that I was more interested in interaction design and UX, and that's where my strength was. Like I killed my interaction design class, like, <laughs> but all my other classes I was struggling, and it was kind of weird because I realized like, oh, I had spent my whole life thinking I was going to be a graph designer, and then turns out like I'm actually need to do this UX thing, and this is what I want to do. Um, so yeah. I'm kind of envious of like your, you know, expansive journey because <laughs> mine was just like uh, the opposite. Um, but and then, yeah, I I, uh, I fell down the crypto rabbit hole with my friend. He actually left my we were he was my boss and um, he like invited me to be like, hey, try out this whole working at crypto thing. And I was like, OK, I got nothing to lose. I hate my job. So. <laughs> That's basically where I I started and I learned about DAOs. And honestly, I, I mean, my back, I'm 
um, a black woman and going from like working class to corporate was really jarring for me. And Mm. it was, it was hard to like learn how to code switch, learn how to like deal with these like office colloquialisms that I didn't know what the fuck, what they were, you know, like, (laughs) and like all this like bureaucracy, but like in the context of like an office, um, it didn't help that that I live in Denver and it's like, you know, Mm. pretty one of the whitest places in America. But the part that I liked about working in crypto instantly was like, the idea of like getting away from that bullshit and having yeah. the concept of like having like equity and shared ownership and and being able to work with people who like live in various parts of the world and like being forced to like not you know have that you know in America we we always assume that our point of view is the point of view and working in crypto kind of forces you to be like no people live everywhere all the time like you can't like make that assumption about someone's background or where they're from because oftentimes you're working with people of various time zone and countries um and that just kind of like jumped like i I, like basically nosedived into the rabbit hole after like my first taste of Taoism, for better or for worse (laughs) yeah yeah that's great that makes a lot of sense to me too i mean those are those things that you've named i think are the reasons that i um, really got pulled in. But the thing that attracted me originally was the design problems <clears throat> because it's such, it was such a nascent kind of burgeoning space. And when I first looked at some of these, some of these apps, some of these decentralized apps, they were, they were just so bad. They looked horrible, but then they were also like kind of difficult to use. And it just immediately stood out to me as being a really interesting design space on so many like on, on, on multiple levels, um, on one hand, it's interesting to think that UX, UI could be so bad, but still work because people are just like fundamentally motivated to make that money. Um, yes, like exactly. How, <laughs> you know? That was surprising so that, me when I first started. Like, I'm like, really? Y'all are really using this shit? Like, <laughs> Yeah. But then all these points that you're naming too, like the sovereignty, the radical autonomy, um, the, the potential at least for diversity. Although I think I'm, I'm still pretty much surrounded by like white cis males, but, um, (laughs) like there's, there's this potency of universal access and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm even cringing a little bit by saying universal because it's like, whose universality is that really? Um, but there's the promise there. And then that that's like a design space. It's, it's, it's a design space where the digital tools and, and the applications that proliferate around them are setting mm-hmm. the precedent for our need to rethink the designs of the social layers and the cultural layers and the government mm-hmm. layers and the economic layers. And that's just like really fascinating that the tool would come first in that way rather than being kind of the residue or the document of previous innovations or design patterns. Yeah. I feel like there's, there's two layers to designing a web three. There's their product and products. And then there's like the organization and interpersonal layer and, you know, governance and all that. And, and oftentimes those two are uh, at odds with each other, oddly enough, because, you know, I've, I've observed organizations where, 
their ethos was, you know, shared ownership and all that good stuff. But because of that, the product they're building is, you know, very staunch in capitalism, they often, you know, feel at odds in, with themselves. Um, or another thing that can happen is because everyone is so money motivated that the, the you know, the ideas and, you know, the, I guess, um, the mission, so to speak, kind of fades away um, and, and the money becomes a priority, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You know, it's, <laughs> I, I joke about how I hate money and that that's like kind of an absurd nonsensical statement. And sometimes I wonder, am I, do I just say that to provoke people? But um, I, I think it's like this, necessary i don't even know if it's necessary but it, it's definitely mm-hmm. evil <laughs> yeah um, in in how it um you know makes us align behind uh, moral agendas and ideologies and just it makes it makes humans do crazy shit yes um but it's also undeniable this power that it has over our desires mm-hmm. and you know it has such powerful influence on our identities and I think the design patterns of money, which I've really, I've been forced to think about over the last couple mm-hmm. of years being in crypto. Um, like I can't think about it in terms of number go up, like degen shit. Mm-hmm. I can, I, I mean, I could, but I, I just, I don't have the bandwidth for that. <clears throat> it doesn't keep me engaged. I should say. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is the psychology of it. Like it's like, you know, I don't know. It, it's like propaganda in a way. It, it at least has relations to that. It has, you know, it's like um, Madison Avenue style marketing or advertising that really isn't just about um, selling you this thing, but it's selling you this idea behind the thing. And in this space, in crypto, people are talking about programming our values into our money. And it's, mm-hmm. that's the thing that keeps me here is like, what does that even mean? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. The idea like of like a, making a smart track contract that can like account for all these various mechanisms to, to, you know, maintain whatever the, the mission or the, the idea behind the token. Um, and, yeah. and having rules and regulations around it versus like, you know, regular money, whoever has it, has it, you know, really. <laughs> um, one thing, actually, I started to think about a couple of things you were saying, like the relationship to money and how to design for it. And I guess I wanted to share like my personal journey, like luckily enough, like I've, I've been able to increase the amount of money that I've made exponentially working in crypto. And I kind of went through a personal um, confliction with it. Um, Mm -hmm. and like, cause I have already, I've always known like struggle and hustle and like whenever the opportunity presented itself to not have to struggle and hustle, I chose not to take it because that's all I've known. Like, I don't don't know a, uh, a leisurely life, you know, and I often like create situations that, um, are hard just for the sake of being hard. (laughs) And, um, and I think, um, in terms of design and crypto, I think, you know, we live in a very, like you said earlier, like it's diverse, but not really. And I think a lot of the people who are designing for, you know, the layman are from a very secure financial standpoint. 
and then I was talking to this, about this with, um, in our last episode is like, how does like us being so far removed from like the economic status of like the, the baseline regular people make it easy to like misdesign or like not consider, you know, different situations are like implications of a design when we're making these like financial apps and, and UX patterns. Um, I think it, mm. it's a big, it's not a big issue, but I think it's, it's problematic, I guess a little bit. Um, Cause mm-hmm. I've seen people just like not be kind of careless in their design decisions, not realizing that like, Hey, if this isn't clear to the user, they can lose very precious money and that could affect their livelihood, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There, There's, yeah, now you have me thinking in a few different directions. Um, <laughs> I mean, first of all, I can relate to what you're saying. Like I came into this space with no money and I, I certainly came in looking for work, as I mentioned, um, but I didn't necessarily come in with, come in with like degen tendencies. Like I wasn't following a Ponzi or anything. Um, and yeah, it's like, I, I also made more money in this space than I kind of expected to. And that I'm like very aware of the shift in the psychology of what happens when in moving from like a scarcity mindset to that, to that hustle and that grind, which I also have kind of always done um, to a state where one can be more um, choosy of the projects that they take on. and how that like you know so i think one of the design problems and this isn't really like a ux ui design problem so much as it is a sociological one mm-hmm. um, which is like if crypto is able to generate all of this wealth and also provide these incredible means for distributing that wealth in a like uninhibited and unregulated way and we can actually you know not just in some pie in the sky idealistic scheme of universal basic income but mm-hmm. if we can actually distribute it and people co- like um, in mass can get out of scarcity mindset, how, how does that change our whole collective understanding of the world design problem? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, then there's this other point that you said about, um, I, I think it has to do, my interpretation of it at least is it has something to do with like the difference in, web two design patterns to web three design patterns. And it seems like there's this initial impulse to make the web three dApps more like web two user experiences, which really Mm -hmm. means abstracting a lot, uh, a lot of that technical stuff out so that people don't have to look at graphs and numbers and, you know, abstracting out the, the, the technicalities and, Mm-hmm. Um, removing those frictions so that things can just be really smooth. And it's like, yeah, if you do that, you're kind of disempowering that user from really knowing what they're getting into. And that yeah, can be exactly. really risky on a lot of different levels. Um, so yeah, there's like this totally different kind of psychology, mm-hmm. you know, which is related to all the other points too, about sovereignty and transparency and autonomy and decentralization Um it's like the design pattern, the psychological design pattern of the persona or of the user is more about like how to empower them with information and empower them to use it 
um, and also empower them to recognize how important it is for them to learn about it and not just abstract it away. Um, yeah. yeah, and I also think that there is a mental unlock, uh, an additional mental unlock from going from Web 2 to Web 3, for, for even for users, is like knowing, like ownership is a lot of work. Ownership comes with a lot of responsibility. And I think um, people are so used to or have been conditioned to own nothing or to own very little. And like they're used to applications just kind of doing and holding the, everything for them. And when you're going into dApps where your own wallet, you, you, you carry your own information from, from dApp to dApp, that's like a whole different I think people don't realize like that's that's different. Like you are the holder of your data and you're going from place to place and you have to be mindful of what you're connecting to, what you're giving access to. You know, there's so many, you know, stories about hacks and things like that. And I think when people say onboarding, I, I kind of often don't understand what they mean because there, there's one thing to like know what a wallet is and know basic crypto. There's another thing to onboard into the mentality that is like, you are owner now, you know, and with that ownership comes all these things. Um, because the, I, yeah, like you said, the idea of like abstracting away all these decisions is sort of disempowering, especially when you're carrying around your, all your assets and you are the holder of them. Like, I want to know what the, you know, the risks are for the decisions that I'm making, because this is, these are my assets that I'm carrying around and, you know, in this wallet or whatever context, or this is the, this is the money that I'm putting up for liquidity. Like, you know, I, I need to know these things. Um, and yeah, I think yeah. there's one thing, I think you can have a good UX and still empower people. I don't, I don't think those are two separate things. I think it's very easy to, to say, Oh, this is too complicated. Let's obscure it away. But that's just like a cop out to me. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's nicely said. <clears throat> I like that a lot. And in fact, I would say a good UX for Web3 probably is to empower people. And if that's not what's being accomplished, then it's probably, I mean, any number of things could be happening, but it's likely just appropriating a design pattern that's not really appropriate. And th I don't know, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about. <clears throat> it's kind of a half-baked idea. so. Um, I don't know how it's going to come out, but, um, no, no problem. There's, there's this kind of reversal with, when it comes to the UX research, right? Um, mm -hmm. conduct these, you, you conduct a script based on some initial expectations or anticipations and you interview these users and you generate these personas based on what they, what, what emerges from those interactions. And then that's supposed to set the foundational layer around which all subsequent decisions are made so that the thing that you're building is like really justified based on mm -hmm. that user's needs. But with web three, I'm starting to think, um, well, first of all, we should still be doing that UX research to inform mm -hmm. what we build. And it's ridiculous if we don't, even though mostly what I see is people like uh, engineers just YOLOing it and like mm -hmm. rage hacking these minimally viable things that it's like, what is that? How are they even minimally viable? Like, in don't even to get what? me started on minimally viable anything. I, <laughs> I think the whole idea is stupid to be honest. Honestly, hot take. I think 
I don't know. I, I'm like, I often debate about the usefulness of personas. Having done a couple of them, I think you could get away with not having personas if you have a culture of continually, you know, doing continuous research. Um, and you don't really sure. need a persona as much if you're always always in touch with your users in various contexts. Then you know them. It becomes a part of your 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 knowledge in your in your head. Versus like a it's it's hard to get external teams to like resonate with a piece of paper that is a persona. You know. I hear you. But. Okay, so now <laughs> now I know who I'm dealing with. You're a designer that comes from the anti-persona camp. Um, <laughs> No, but well, it, this is it, the it latest revolution. Like, yeah, it does kind of seem like designers are on one side of the line or the other, right? It's kind of funny. Um, I, I wouldn't push back on that too hard. I think that you're you're onto something there. Um, personally, I think that the real value of generating personas is for the whole team to align around the user mm, um, okay. and just to make it really explicit. It's like putting a sticky on the wall that's a target. And it's like, this is the single target. And mm. if we don't have that, the risk is that, um, especially if it, with a team that's heavy in developers and light in designers, that mm -hmm. each of those devs are going to have a, a slightly, you know, albeit nuanced and albeit uh, like real, but a different understanding of who that user is. And then those subtle misalignments like scale into major frictions yeah. later in the process. I agree with that. Honestly, I've experienced um, that. <laughs> but I, I've but done it, personas and they don't, I guess it really depends on your team, but like sometimes they take to them and they're like, cool, you're going to use these. And sometimes they're like, I still know best. Like, especially if you're dealing with a high ego team, like. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. Well, so maybe that's not the persona's that. fault. That's the team's <laughs> fault rather. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, that's another thing kind of going on in web three. It's like, what is, there's this larger question about what is the importance of research? Um, we need to be more, I, I don't know, like action oriented. Like we need to have concrete deliverables, concrete outputs. And Why? if a significant percentage of the budget is being dedicated for this research and then we don't even use it, uh, then what's the point? And it's like, well, yeah, That's... the point is that you generate it and then you use it. Um, I, I think when I was, when I'm talking to someone like that, I, I question their experience because you need to do research more in web three because you don't have all the, uh, stalker apps that web two has web two. Yeah. They know what screen you went on. They know all the amalgamation of like 80% or 70% of their users on their sites. They know every little button they click. They know everything about what's going on on their site. We know nothing about what's going on right. on their site. And yeah. if you are, the thing about, I, I don't, it feels very capitalistic to be like output, 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 because like, why? Why do we have to be output? Over? Like, I don't, I don't, what if I'm talking to a person like that, I would like to boil down like, but why? Why do we need to be so output oriented? And if I, I suspect if I've made that person unpack that thought, it was, it's FOMO. It's, well, we have to be as fast as everybody else because we're going to miss out on whatever. But people don't care about who did it first. They care about who did it best most of the time. Mm. Um, like, yeah, <laughs> you know?
Uh, yeah, I totally, I agree. I mean, I ask why all the time. Um, cause I'm, I'm like totally shameless in this. Um, <laughs> and the answers that I receive are somewhere along the lines of, um, you know, yeah, kind of capitalistic, but that's okay because we move fast and we break things and the more shit we break, the more pieces we have to work with. And it's all about composability anyways. And so let's just like more pieces, more, more, more. Um, and then also I think that that's basically a justification for healthy competition, which is fundamentally mm-hmm. capitalistic. And, and I'm always the minority voice in the room mm-hmm. in calling for slowing down and doing things more carefully. You know, um, I can't remember who said it, but instead of moving fast and breaking things, we should be moving slow and fixing things. Mm-hmm. And I think web three is the time and the place for doing that. But I don't know, like maybe this is an instance of many that we could point to, I'm sure of kind of bringing in that web two um, psychology as mm-hmm. well as the design patterns. And they're kind of working against us or we're, they're making us work against ourselves in a way that just feels so excessive to me, mm-hmm. <clears throat> wasteful. Yeah. And this is, this is the, a point I was going to make earlier too, um, kind of about personas and um, about that empowerment point you were making, like, maybe the reversal in web three design uh, in web three design patterns is to have it feed, uh, have, have the river flow the other way. So instead of it Mm -hmm. being generated from the user's desires and then having the product that perfectly fulfills those desires, maybe the products that we build should flow back down to the user to, change the way that they desire Mm -hmm. um and i know that's like kind of half-baked and convoluted and weird but um you know i think that that could be defined as empowerment or even education or you know i like to think of it maybe as a shift in perspective that using web3 tools dow tools DeFi, Mm -hmm. whatever it happens to be would fundamentally impress a different kind of world vision upon the user. And that gets me really excited. Yeah. And that's a slow build. Cause if you, what you're describing is kind of what happened with social media, right? When we first, you know, when social media first came on the scene, it was literally just a way to like keep up with your friends. You know, that's how it started. And then, yeah. you know, like, you know, 10 plus years later, it has influenced our behavior and how, how we think of it. Like even our relationships are different because of social media. A lot of times and yeah. you know there's articles fundamentally about, like, changed yeah about like loneliness and things like that so i mean that's not a far-fetched idea but it's a slow build it takes that takes time social engineering like changing the way people like relate to things in the world that takes time it, it, it you know facebook didn't become the conglomerate that it is now you know overnight and i think yeah. that's the thing that i get upset about with web3 is like why are we so obsessed with moving fast when like you know, a lot of the things that we know and love today did not happen fast. You know, yeah. like it, it happens slowly and, and sh- surely. And I think there's somewhere in between. I feel like you can you can ship relatively, you know. If you have a good team. You can ship relatively like often and well. 
but often, but a lot of times, you know, in, in DAOs, we're very, you know, short staff. Like there's only like, you know, 10, you know, 10, 15 people sometimes at a DAO and, and like half of them are engineers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so like, I think, and, and also let me ask you this. Why do you think the reason why the build, build, builds? if you think about the personalities that make up a typical organization, they're builders. That's what they want to do. If you are a carpenter, you want to make a table, you know, like, like that's what you want to do. And so you're going to say anything to justify that want, that need, whether that is right. like, oh, we got to be compostability, like, you know, that argument is like, because no, at the end of the day, you're a builder and that's what you want to do. You want to build shit. Did you say compostability? I like Compos- that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> compostability over composability. Yeah. I mispronounced words. Sorry. I'm Southern. No, but I love it. That was a wonderful slip. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, the builders going to want to build and they can convince, they're very convincing people and they can convince stakeholders and inexperienced founders that that's what they need to do. And when you're one of the only designers in the room, you you start to feel like you you get gaslit into thinking that you're crazy for wanting to do good design. (laughs) totally it's it's totally psychological warfare and people don't even know it's like that that's don't even get me started about this either but that's like where i kind of get hung up on larping and all this like mmorpg lore it's like okay but this is all feigned war and if Mm -hmm. you know if all you have is a hammer all you're gonna see is nails and if all you have is this like mental image of first person mm-hmm. dungeon crawling shooter games all you're going to see is a reality that's based on dungeon crawling mm-hmm. like we need to um a, a lot of the work that i'm doing right now is moving away from the ui side of things and and towards um community design and, and trying to redirect some of those narratives um you know totally relevant to what we're talking about now in terms of mm-hmm. you know believing that the underlying psychology ultimately will allow us to, you know, informs the way that we see the world and informs our interactions and relationships. And something needs to pivot on that level if we're going to escape these, um, mm-hmm. these like other kind of design patterns that are being impressed upon us. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's something else I wanted to say too, and I'm going to completely contradict myself now. Go ahead. <laughs> um, there, there's there's some kind of defense to be made for speed for, for moving mm-hmm. fast. And I think your point about um, the, the points that you're making are very strong and I totally agree. So I'm not pushing back on them, but just not from another perspective. Um, okay. So I'm spending a lot of time with Kevin Owaki these days and we're trying to build some community together and you know he has that green pill podcast and mm-hmm. i listen to that from time to time one of his recent guests threw out this figure and it really stuck in my head it's like we have like eight years to um remove something like 40 percent of the carbon that's in the atmosphere um and like figure out what to do with it figure out how to remove it and figure out what to do with it and stop generating it and it's like, that is a massive design problem. I can't even mm-hmm. remember who said it and what the context was. But when if you're thinking like, you know, so in terms of crypto, I guess, if we're thinking in terms of disrupting the economy before mm-hmm. it's, 
you know, quote unquote, too late or developing a viable self-sovereign governance system before whoever happens to be in a power seat, like pushes a button and fucks everyone over, Um, you know, or like whatever it happens to be, like if we're going to retain some kind of semblance of identity or autonomy before it just come becomes completely ir- irrevocably co-opted by web two patterns or whatever, however we want to frame it, there is kind of a desperation, which I think we would be foolish to not acknowledge. And that just complicates things even more, right? Cause we want to move slow and we want to be reparative and we want to fix things, but we also kind of have to move fast but hopefully not because of FOMO and hopefully not because we're just lemmings Mm -hmm. racing over the edge of the cliff. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's an in-between and I've, I've I've become more nuanced in my thoughts about design approaches, living in web three, so to speak. So Mm -hmm. I used to think that like, you gotta, you gotta research everything like, you know, better to be safe than sorry, you know, you know, usability tests, like things before they go out the door. And then now that I'm trying to starting to get used to startup life, I think it really just depends on what you're what you're doing. Some things require more research than others. Some things have will have more impact and implications than others. And I think, you know, you need to have that nuance. Like if you have, if you're making like a table stake feature or a feature you know is not gonna like rock the boat or or change radically change your user base, then yeah, go ahead and release that thing and release the smallest version of that thing possible. You know, but if you're making something that is dealing with people's money, psychology, uh, gonna change the way people view the app, the brand, like something that is, has a lot of you know beefiness to it and that will maybe cost us a lot of money if we get it wrong you're probably going to want to do some research, you know, that it's, it's, yeah. it's in your best interest to do research in that context. Um, yeah. And it's not a, a, a and I hate, I, I think the internet is making us think in such binaries. It's like, it's not no research or all the research. It's just, it depends like most things. <laughs> yeah, that's you right. Know? Absolutely. I, I agree with that. And binaries are horrible for the most part. <laughs> Um, as, uh, definitely in terms of like cultural development, binaries mm-hmm. are horrible. Um, I do want to give a chance to talk. I want to talk about doubt life because let's do it. You're a part, you're a part, you're a part of the doubt. I feel like I, I would be at a disservice to myself if I didn't go, have us go on a tangent about DAOs. So what is your like opening statement? Like what, do you, how do you view DAOs? What are some of your experiences that you've had in DAOs and like, how does that re- relate to design? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I jumped right into the deep end in this space with, um, with joining Moloch DAO, um, the OG Moloch DAO, um, like maybe the fourth DAO ever in existence. And that was like two, two and a half years ago at this point. Um, and so even though Moloch DAO was summoned in like 2019, February, I think, of 2019, and it was only a, like a year and a half or whatever old, it was like already stagnant. <clears throat> um, and I went into, I jumped right into Moloch DAO with the design problem of how to revitalize a community 
that had already kind of dissipated um, and did a lot of work with setting up ops and strategy. And um, yeah, it was, it was kind of weird because it kind of defaulted to a bureaucratic uh, centralized um, uh, work stream, which I have a lot of mixed feelings about in hindsight or even in the present. Like, I don't think that um, the way that we attended to that problem was really the best way, but it was a, a profound uh, learning experience, which I've definitely taken forward into my other DAO <clears throat> um, involvements. Um, and so I'm also a member of Raid Guild, which is um, another pretty OG uh, DAO in the space um, within the Moloch DAO ecosystem. I'm very bullish on the Moloch DAO ecosystem, um, not just because of that initial experience with Moloch DAO, but I just really think that these people are incredible. The builders and the thinkers um, in in the Moloch DAO ecosystem are some of my favorite people in the space. So I'm really rooted within that ecosystem. And so Raid Guild is kind of like a posse of Web3 mercenaries. Um, it's like a, a Web3 Taoist version of a, a freelancer organization, um, but self-sovereign, unlike like Fiverr or, or Upwork or whatever. Um, so that's cool. I also was uh, I'm uh, almost full-time contributor to Dow House for a period and am very interested in how they're solving um, UI problems as well as community strategy and management problems over there. And I was contributing in a capacity to try to provide some um, knowledge, visualization and, and awareness across teams and um, trying to think about you know, trying to undergo this kind of heuristic process of not just taking the superficial problem as it reveals itself, but asking the five whys to go deeper and to try to understand the root of the problem. And Dow House is an interesting use case because of their governance system. Um, they, I won't, I won't, I'll spare the details, but basically they have this like really novel structure called Uber House, which is a Dow composed of other DAOs. Every member of Uberhouse is another DAO on the DAOhouse UI. And I became really fascinated with um, dreaming and scheming about uh, DAO design patterns when, you know, individual to individual through a proposal flow, but then DAO to DAO through this almost like federated intermediary. And that's where I started thinking more about um, utility of tokens um and yeah i don't know all kinds of things of that nature and i'm also a participant in uh gitcoin which incubated some really weird um design projects basically i've been making comic books um starting with raid guild and then through gitcoin and that's now spun out to a new community which is just starting to get oriented right now called pluriverse pluriverse.wtf which is um not a dao yet it's just a kind of nascent discord server but it's an opportunity to kind of bring some of the developers and designers in conversation with more humanities researchers and think about more of the transitional design ontological design and like narrative design um you know, some of these things that we've touched on already in this conversation. 
and there, there's some other stuff as well, some other DAOs that I hang out in, but those are the the core um, the core areas that I so you're find a DAO expert in. at this point. I don't well. I don't know about expert. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, what, I don't like I to call myself like I, an expert in anything. Yeah, I know because you can have a, a forever path of learning, you know. But I guess how would you contrast traditional work versus DAO work, in the most like, like I guess I can go first. Where working in a DAO. Being new to Web3 and working in a DAO was like extremely overwhelming to me because I was onboarding in a couple of different ways. I was like onboarding into like shared ownership. I was onboarding into like this whole Web3 thing and also this whole self-sovereignty thing and the no bosses thing. And it was kind of a lot. Um, and it felt kind of chaotic, my first experience. Like, I guess I going into Web3, like I was used to having that security blanket that was like a manager or was like a person that like kind of shepherded me through my work versus in DAO, it's like kind of a free fall. It feels like when you first join. Yeah. Well, for me, maybe that transition was, um, was more free and easy. I've been a mm-hmm. freelancer my whole life. So Mm. I've never had anything close to resembling, well, maybe a few things that were close, but I've really haven't had a corporate job um, or Mm -hmm. like a really worked for a single company um, in a, it's certainly not a startup or a software development company Mm -hmm. as a dedicated full-time employee in that sense. In fact, I haven't really ever had a job resembling that structure in any industry. Um, Mm. So I've always been pretty self-sovereign. And also, of course, that means I've lived very precariously. So I've lived <laughs> my whole life as a poor artist with no benefits and mm-hmm. um, paycheck to paycheck and all of that, kind of scrambling for work where I could find it. And I think that really, you know, I, I, I was like an early adopter of pretty much any, any social media that came out because that's mm-hmm. how I kind of stayed alive and made connections and mm-hmm. could travel. So the idea of communities being based on the internet that were decentralized and autonomous and everyone's kind of in it for themselves, but in it together at the same time, Mm -hmm. um, really clicked for me. Um, it just makes so much sense to me and I just, I kind of love it. So the transition as I think to what you're asking about the, the transition into that work mode, um, made a lot of sense to me as well. Have you felt yeah. any downsides of this way of working or ways that it can be improved? <clears throat> well, DAOs have a lot of problems <laughs> to be sure. Um, and it's beyond just the web three design problems that we've been discussing, which are kind of, it, it's kind of a weird, uh, yeah, thing of its own. Um, as ironic as it is, DAOs are supposed to be, coordination tools but they suffer so tragically from so mm-hmm. many coordination failures and <clears throat> there's a lot of problems we could touch on but the things i'm most aware of is the siloing of knowledge in mm-hmm. particular work streams um and i think that's partially related to this tension where we want to empower individuals to do their own thing and to not need permission and just to like 
go. But then we have, you know, there's this metaphor that keeps coming up of a, of a, a hydra head, a hydra headed beast, and the heads are all pointed in different directions. And mm-hmm. so it pulls the body apart. Um, yeah, that's pretty so there, common for DAOs. <laughs> right. So it seems like there's this propensity to create small, tight knit groups and for them to work together. But then, because as the groups scale, it's again, this is like a weird, dark psycho- psychological thing, but we default to wanting to conduct town hall meetings in this highly bureaucratic way. And the result, we call that democracy, but the result is that the loudest voice in the room usually ends up getting it their way. Yep. And it's just like, we haven't really figured out how to share knowledge across our work streams in a way that preserves the individual autonomy yet. Mm -hmm. And there's so many... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, another thing I've observed in DAOs is, like, coups. So, like, if the, or, like, you basically hostile takeovers, for if I can't pronounce the word. Yeah. Um, when, basically, a DAO didn't have a strong enough checks and balances, and so they succumb to, like, you know, a group of people who, like, basically take this shit over. And so, um, and so DAOs don't often solve for, like, narcissists and sociopaths. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and another and thing, there's I, so many of them, there's so many. I mean, in the corporate world, they're the most successful people in the company most of the time. So, like, yeah, I think we we're a little bit naive and we don't think about the potential ways that someone can hijack or or take over a thing. Um, yeah, and you another, call it a coup, but I would call it bureaucratic capture. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah, but I, yeah. I like how you frame it that way. When you say coup, it sounds like it's really intentional. And bureaucratic mm. capture for me kind of involves more like collective complacency. Mm. Okay, I I get that. Because that's definitely yeah, what was what the other thing you were going to say. Uh, sorry, I forgot my thing. But collective complacency is like basically <laughs> these loud groups of people take over, and because no one wants to like fight them, they just let it happen. It's like the bystander effect kind of goes into play. Yeah. Um, it's a combination of some people being like maybe more softer and mm-hmm. not feeling like they are empowered to speak out in a public forum. Mm-hmm. It's some other people maybe wanting to be involved, but not really knowing how, because mm-hmm. there's like two different factions forming. Yeah. And then those factions take up so much space that some people just don't know how to squeeze in there. Um and then, you know, I think because this is a space for builders, um, or a space of builders, I should say, uh, the tendency is to design a tool that fixes that problem. And yeah. I, you know, I believe in DAOs and I believe in, in blockchain technology and I believe in decentralization and everything, but I do not believe that all of human nature can be fixed with a tool nope. that we nope. just hack out <laughs> yeah that's why people so keep, it's like uh, we have to somehow figure out how to hold space for yeah humanity because uh so, yeah i did a project where we were trying to find out like what's what should we build for DAOs, and at the end of it we were like they don't need another tool they need to work better 
<laughs> they need PMs. Yeah. They need like shepherds that like can kind of help like people wrangle and get people like in, in that focus. I guess one thing I, I question is like, I wonder how do you quality quality control in a DAO? Because like I've, I'm really mm-hmm. there's there's like the code version of decentralization that like the code itself can um help with quality but when you, when it comes to like human decentralization like how do you quality control when there's no like figurehead or like source or like north star so to speak to keep people and i think the answer is maybe like individual and interpersonal relationships of like you know giving each other's rigor to your work but i mean it's harder to do at scale so that's one thought yeah. I had, and I want to get the second thought in my head. There is perceived power and actual power. And another thing I've observed is in DAOs, like even though you're not technically my boss, because of your proximity <laughs> to certain people and your influence in the organization, you move and act like a boss. You know, um, and yes. so even though on paper you're not a boss, you're taking up that space, um, and that also oh, causes shit. conflict in, in DAOs. That's so right on. Oh my God. I suffer from that so much. (laughs) Yeah. Those are two really important points. Um, so yeah, on the first one, like how do we, I I think it's a, you're, I think that question really is about how do we move away from this quantitative mindset more towards a qualitative mindset and yeah, like focus on relationships. I think we need to practice holding space for different kinds of perspectives and different kinds of dispositions. And that's not just, that's not the same thing with just HR for DAOs. Mm -hmm. It's so much more nuanced than that. It's something much closer to like anarchist conviviality. Like we all need to care for each other in a peer to peer network. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't just delegate care to a group because then that's bureaucracy all over again. Exactly. Um, and it, yeah, that's something I think about a lot. And then that perceived and real power, Oh, that hits like so deep to the core. Um, because yes, yeah, so there's like a lot of, there's a lot of number crunching and accounting and spreadsheets and various kinds of things that most people probably don't want to think about. Um, mm-hmm in any organization, but also with DAOs. And when someone steps up, there's an incredible amount of power that they receive due to the proximity of that information, Mm -hmm. which isn't, yeah, but, but there's still just more or less peers on in the horizontal org structure. And I think that relates back a little bit to knowledge sharing across work streams, but it's actually, Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's even stickier because I don't think that the solution there is necessarily that everyone in the DAO needs to have all of the information and do all of the accounting. Um, I don't have. I would actually not even venture uh, <laughs> even a speculative. Because solution there's to risk that one. there. Because the thing is, proximity to to information, especially in these loose legal structures, is risk yeah. is inherently risky. So like. You being the accountant of a DAO automatically puts you at risk for certain things because of your proximity to that information. Like you might be investigated more. You might be subject to like legal troubles more. Like 
And I think, um, and also, I think my, I guess the solution that we've kind of stumbled upon a little bit at Coordinate is like, everybody has access to information or can't ask for it, but it's not necessarily something that we put out all the time to everybody. So like the doors yeah. is cracked for if you want to know, but then on certain things, like they purposely protect, like, I don't know all the legal stuff. And that's mm-hmm. my design because it's, it's, it's protective. It's like, if I knew, if I, if I was in proximity to these things and that opens me up to legal risk and, you know, and I kind of don't want, mm-hmm. don't want that. don't need it, you know, kind of thing. Um, but also another thing that I, I saw happen at Sushi and I don't want to be specific, but certain people started, you know, stepping up and voids in the organization. Like certain things just weren't getting done and needed someone to, to, to do them. And so, yeah. But in in that stepping up, other people became resentful because of that perceived power that we're talking about. It's like, how dare you do this or whatever? Like there were there was much more of a of a want for chaos because in that chaos there was no there was a little bit more flatness. And but in yeah. well, the more and more we became they became structured, became these perceived hierarchies that then started to create these factions of like you know opposing views, and it's like. As an outsider, I was like, but you can't get mad at them for stepping up because it's not like you were stepping up. Like somebody needed to do this job, <laughs> you know, but yeah. it was kind of like self-destructive in a way. Um, and um, I think that's also really good <laughs> observation. <laughs> and because I've been on all three sides of that. Yeah. Sorry, okay. No, I want to hear what you said to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I've been on all three sides of that. I've been in a, in a DAO and recognized gaps and then stepped up and then felt that resentment. Um, and it's just like, what the fuck? Like, you didn't want to do it, so I'm doing it. And it just mm-hmm. gets weird. And then I've also been in orgs where there's gaps and I'm not going to step up and do it. <laughs> I don't want yeah. to. But someone else does. And then it automatically kind of, it just brings this like weird residual or like just residue you know it's like this Mm -hmm. shit the aura changed like the this this dynamic has changed and more often than not i find myself taking that third way advocating for chaos and entropy but i understand (laughs) that that's a limiting mechanism Uh, how how do i even say this i don't know i I take i I go back and forth on this all the time i know that that's a limiting mechanism to growth Mm -hmm. to keep things chaotic like that but i guess i mean i'm just gonna say it i guess i'm pretty anti-growth like i think (laughs) yeah (laughs) we need to keep shit small yeah and i i resist like i hesitate because i know that's like the opposite of what everyone else is all about but i don't Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna stop questioning that actually honestly same i think exponential growth is unrealistic it's kind of stupid. Like, like for instance, I don't know. I was reading this article about how Netflix is like in trouble because inflation and people are cutting their subscriptions because of their, you know, increased costs. And they want to make that money back by like potentially not letting people share accounts and blah, blah, blah. Like basically going against their, their, their values that they established earlier for the idea of like exponential growth or to keep these numbers up. And it's like mm-hmm. all these revenue models have, a cap like there is a cap to this shit there there is no such thing as exponential growth we are are organic beings these are organic things organic things don't grow exponentially they eventually die like that's a part of life 
or our stable off. Yeah. Like, and it's capitalism that got us thinking that we could just grow exponentially. Like, no, eventually nobody's going to want to buy a Peloton because everybody who's going to buy one already bought one. You know, like, that's yeah. just, you know, that's just how that works. You know, eventually right. Netflix is not going to be able to make more money because everybody who wants Netflix has Netflix. You know, like, you've saturated the market. Um, and I think we can easily get caught up in that mindset, too, in Web3 of, like, just exponential growth, exponential building, go, go, go. And it's like, well, but for what? Why? Like, I I even question, like, why do we have to grow exponentially and do all the things all at once? Can we just, you know, focus and, you know, release, measure, regroup, release, measure? Like, can we get in, like, a cadence and a rhythm like most things are in life, you know, for things? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, <laughs> I think this absolutely relates back to some of these earlier points that we we're making too. It's mm-hmm. still so early in the DAO space and in the Web3 crypto space. And we've, we're still building in a traditional way. We haven't mm-hmm. figured out how we, we haven't fully conceived the problem yet. So oh, we haven't gosh. really figured out how to adjust our disposition in relation to it. And I think some of it has to come back to, you know, as we uncover more of the complexity, we have to shift our psychology. And mm-hmm. I think DAOs provide radical alternatives for for the world, basically. I mean, for governance mm-hmm. structures, cultural, sociological structures, identity structures, ontological structures. But the way that we're designing them is so banal and mundane and vanilla because we're just replicating the older patterns. Like we haven't yeah. figured out how to think outside the box yet to allow DAOs to come into what they really could be. Yeah, because they don't have the knowledge. Hire you an organizational psychologist. Hire you a PhD who spent three years thinking about this shit. Like hire you, like you need, I think it's like, we need to stop thinking that we can do everything ourselves. Like there are people who are subject matter experts in these things that can come up with way better thing than we can come up. Cause we're at the end of the day, we're just designers and builders. We don't specialize in those things. You know, we don't, we, I don't, you know, I have read some sociology and study a little bit, but I am no means expert enough to, to design a whole governance system. Like I think we're naive in our ability and <laughs> our abilities. And yeah. we need to, to like go to the intellects who like, who live and breathe this shit. And there, and I think in that we can, you know, start to think about more like nuance and creative ways to create like organization and and governance structures. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I'm tapering. (laughs) Um, So we're towards the end. I have to go to a meeting now, but um, I'll stop recording. I feel like that was.